0: Hello and welcome to the uh, St Barnabas Bible Podcast. Uh, usually, I'd have Zach with me, but unfortunately, he's not able to be uh, here today. But instead, I do have a very special guest with me. Um, I'm privileged to have Pastor uh, Yuri Brito uh, with me. I'll let him introduce himself in uh, in just a moment. But before we get to that, uh, a reminder, a bit of a housekeeping reminder. Um, if you missed our uh, our spring conference which just happened this last weekend um you can find the recordings on the website so if you're interested in those please go there and uh and listen to those and catch up with our discussion um that's all the housekeeping that needs to be uh needs to be said uh so before um without any further ado um pastor Yuri Brito uh who are you um and what do you uh-huh. think
1: well, thank you. First of all, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. I am a pastor in Pensacola, Florida. I've been here pastoring a, a CREC congregation. This is my 16th year, and God has been uh, very gracious to increase our numbers here in Pensacola. And uh, I have f- uh, five children. have been married to Melinda for 20 years now, and God has really blessed our efforts here, and I am very eager to see the continuity of the work here in this part of Florida.
0: Excellent. So, uh, Yuri, you're, you're here to talk to us today because you've um, you've written a a new book that's just been released. Uh, tell us a little bit. What, what's the book called? Um, where can people find it?
1: Yeah, well, thank you again. The book is called The, the War of the Priesthood, An Exposition of the Armor of God. And it was published about three weeks ago, and it's been uh, very well received. I just returned from Moscow, Idaho, uh, for a book signing and lectures uh, series there. It was just a really delightful time. The book is essentially an attempt to explain chapter 6 from from an angle that is somewhat unfamiliar to the American biblical interpreter and certainly probably evangelical world Mm -hmm. at large. The majority view, David, when it comes to Ephesians chapter 6, is that the Apostle Paul is using that familiar imagery because he's mimicking or copying the image of a Roman soldier, and perhaps he is sort of drawing a Roman soldier from his prison cell. What I argue is that that is an untenable position because the Apostle Paul is stressing the need for the armor of God because it will allow us to fight the principalities and powers it would be extremely odd for the Apostle Paul to say, fight the principalities and powers. And by the way, here's a great example, a principality and power for you to imitate. So my argument in the book is that there's something else that Paul is is concerned about, and that is drawing our attention to the priestly language of the Old Testament, in particular the language of Exodus 28 and 29 and Leviticus 8 and 9, which form... The corpus of the priesthood motif, both in its consecration, ordination, and the holy place of the Old Testament, especially in the Torah.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. Um, that certainly here in Cyprus, the, the prevailing view is that one of uh, of this is a Roman soldier. I mean, uh, my my memory of hearing any teaching about uh, Ephesians six really for the last however many years. I don't think I've heard any teaching on it since probably growing up, and then it was definitely very much Roman soldier. I remember one of my friends uh, had a poster on his wall, and it had sort of a techno cyber Roman soldier on it. You know, put on the full armor of God. Um, so it was. Right. It's been very interesting reading your book. See, you know, of course that's not what Paul has in mind, um, especially when we have this war against the principalities and powers uh, in mind. Uh, I, I suspect that some uh, of of our listeners. Um, would be quite surprised to hear of the Christian life uh, as a war at all. I remember the first time I I heard of that. I was sort of embarrassingly old when I when I heard that for the first time. Um, yes. Why do you think that's a surprise to people? Um,
1: yeah, that's a great question, and I think that the the fundamental context that Paul wants to establish in Ephesians six, even before he lists the armor pieces, is that there is an enemy. He is scheming day and night against us. This enemy is defined as the devil himself, Satan. And I think Paul is addressing that precise observation that you made, and that is that Christians, by and large, don't know that they are at war against the gates of hell, against the principalities and powers. And Paul wants to establish a warlike motif, or as one of my professors called it, that the Christian is in a war story. And if he removes that, then we might as well lose the grasp of what God is doing in history. Or, David, more likely, we're going to embrace a form of pietism that simply says that the role of the Christian is to read our Bible, to go to church maybe once a week and uh, perhaps pray once in a while at our leisure, find our favorite Bible translation, our favorite closet, and engage our favorite version of Jesus. That level of pietism, what it simply does is it isolates the priesthood when the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in Romans 15 make it abundantly clear that the priesthood is a corporate world composed of those who have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Very good.
0: Yes, um, uh, <clears throat> one of one of the uh, one of the parts of your book that I think would be um, sort of skipping ahead to where you're talking about the about the parts yes. parts of the armor a little bit. One of the parts that I think would be most surprising for um, for our listeners would be um, your uh, your attachment of, of of the helmet with with yes. with baptism baptism into a a, a corporate um body i've only ever heard ephesians 6 really uh exposited as a as a sort of individual thing um most of our listeners don't don't get that that concept of 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 baptism moving you from you know into some the entrance into some corporate way of life um it's something we've been trying to focus on a little bit so um in our previous podcasts and, and conferences here in cyprus so if you if you know, speaking to speaking to our listeners now. If you uh, have yeah, uh, yeah. more questions about that, go back to those recordings, listen to those. But I wonder, could you um, could you speak to that a little bit? Um, why have we why have we taken these things to be so uh,
1: individualized um, in the
0: modern evangelical
1: church? Yes, and that that is a, that's a great question. And again, one of the emphases that I've tried to make in the book is to connect the Bible and to see a harmonious flow from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So we're dealing with a problem, certainly here in the U.S., and I don't know what the, the culture is in Cyprus, but I can just uh, uh, speculate that it's probably, it probably rises the level of biblical illiteracy in, in the evangelical world. If that's the case, and you have a country here in the U.S. that's largely biblicized, but what the, the, the difficulty of the American interpreter is that they look at the Bible as a proof-texting manual. Mm-hmm. They'll find their life verses. They'll find the kinds of things that give them a little bit of a, of a high or a daily encouragement. But they miss the connectivity or what I call the covenantal structures of the scriptures. Mm. So we have to overcome that barrier first. And then we have to overcome the barrier that uh, many people just simply don't, uh, don't understand or appreciate, which is the the unique details of an ordination service in the Old Testament priesthood. Consecration. Why is there such an intricate description of how a priest is consecrated to his role? Why does a priest have to dress himself in a certain way? What is the meaning of of colors? Why are all these things important? And if they're not important for the modern reader... What the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 is going to be trivial, or at the very least, as as you gave the impression earlier, it'll be kind of an an Iron Man 2.0, you know? (laughs) But what I want to do is I want to draw our attention to the priesthood motif and to see that, for example, before the priest is ordained, before Aaron and his sons receive the garments, a couple of things happen. Number one, he's anointed with oil, and number two, he's washed with water. Hmm. an attentive reader is going to begin to see certain connections there to baptisms of some sort or another it could be the baptisms by sprinkling of the animals of the of the temple furniture but something is happening there incidentally when jesus in matthew chapter 3 is baptized The heavens open, the veils, you know, the the heavenly curtains are opened up. We have access to the Holy of Holies. The Father comes and affirms the Son. John, the forerunner, baptizes our Lord. The first thing he does is he's pushed by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to fight whom? Mm -hmm. To fight the devil. So Paul is alluding to that Jesus-devil warfare. But the first thing that happens is there's a word of affirmation by the Father. Mm-hmm. My argument is, which by the way is elaborated in greater, greater depth, not in specific in Ephesians six, but is argued in greater depth in terms of the priesthood in the book that I recommend your readers and your listeners is by Peter Lightheart called "The Priesthood of the Plebes," and that book elaborates on the the priestly connection between the baptism of the priesthood and our baptisms in the New Covenant. Mm-hmm. My argument, in sum. David, is that the helmet of salvation, which interestingly in the Old Testament marks a priest with holiness, or his turban literally says, holy unto the Lord. The baptism is precisely that. It's the consecration of, as a Presbyterian, as little priests (laughs) into the greater priesthood. And that that little infant, when he's marked by the waters of baptism, is now called to a corporate mission to join other priests on Sunday morning, surely, but also throughout his life, so that that child now has a marker that he must live up to, has an identity that he must live up to. So that connection to the priesthood is fundamental to understanding the connection of the priesthood in the armor of God.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, picking up on something you just said, there, you mentioned uh, the the role of Sunday morning in the uh, priestly warfare um uh life uh, that we're called to as christians um i know that uh, just reading other things that you've written i know that um the sort of renewal of church music is a, of particular interest to you um and i know sort of historically the the view has been that uh that what we sing ha- plays a pretty significant role in in preparing god's people for this kind of priestly warfare throughout their throughout their lives um, how would you, uh, looking at the sort of contemporary church music scene, and what we have here in Cyprus is very similar to what you'd see around in uh, in, in in the US, I'm sure. Uh, how do you think our current church music practices are are doing in preparing God's people for for this priestly war?
1: Yes, and th- that is a an issue of passion to me. If you if you ask someone, what is it that you believe? one of the ways I would answer that question is show me what you sing <clears throat> because your music is such a, a, a clear <clears throat> and true description of the kinds of things you cherish. Right? Augustine said, when you sing, you pray twice. So in other words, the songs we sing are our prayers to God and those songs are going to be reflecting of the kinds of things we believe about God and the evangelical scene. I'm here in the Southern part of the U S we have, uh, this would be probably hard for you to believe in, in Cyprus, but we have 330 churches for a hundred thousand people. I am surrounded by churches everywhere where I live. And the one thing that is common among Methodists and Baptists and uh, Maybe even, you know, even more liturgical traditions here in the South is that their music is virtually the same. They're borrowing from the same industries. So that their their messages and their liturgical styles may differ, but their music is the same. And the sad reality is that we have given over music composition of tunes, words, melodies, all that to untrained, unskilled men and sometimes even women. And so you can have a young man who is 18 years old, but had a, a cool sort of understanding of what music ought to look like. He composes that song on a Friday, and on Sunday morning, the entire church is already singing it. Mm. Now, and the thing about the description, the difference between that and something like Isaac Watts would have written, who was a trained theologian, gifted in logic, who knew the Psalms almost by memory. Mm. And compared to your eighteen-year-old writing music down the road, the discrepancy is so significant that it's even hard to put in a piece of paper. That said, God has given us one hundred and fifty inerrant psalms to sing, and we don't—I don't affirm uh, an exclusive Mm psalmody, but I do believe the psalms ought to be primary in the shaping of Christian music because the psalms offer this uh, variegated uh, genre of music. For all times and in all seasons. You want a psalm of imprecation? We got it. Psalms of lamentation? You got it. Psalms of ascent? You got it. For all times. And so they established the 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 theme, the paradigm, for how all Chris, Chris, uh, Christian music ought to be written. And if that is the primacy in the way we do music, then what we're going to be seeing is that the armor of God is going to allow us to sing that kind of music, especially if we put on the whole armor of God and incidentally right before Ephesians chapter 6 and Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19 the apostle Paul says we are to encourage one another by singing psalms and hymns and spirit mm-hmm. songs mm-hmm. so the way we bathe the armor of god is by singing over it you know it's like um it's it's like a benediction over something mm-hmm. we bathe the armor by singing without music it's very hard to have a successful persevering armor because the armor in some ways is moved by the fuel of Christian music. Mm-hmm.
0: So so how then have you uh how long have you been uh, a pastor in in Pensacola? This is my 16th year. 16th year, yeah, you did say that. Um have you uh, is this something that you've had to try and um Sort of what what's your experience been of trying to uh revivify the church's music there in in in, in Florida um i don't know what kind of church situation you went into there uh, 16 years ago whether this was already sort of starting to flourish fairly healthily or whether you've had to start from scratch but would you uh, be able to reflect a little bit on 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 how you've been able to build up this uh this sort of sung health um
1: yeah, great great, uh, great use of language and the language of revivify. I think that's a, just a great use altogether. <laughs> and I think that's what you got to do. You know, um, American music in the Christian world has, has died a thousand times and something needs to be resurrected. And the way you resurrect that, of course, is through very incremental steps. So I came into a church that was very small when I came back in 2008, and there was a a gentleman in our congregation. I don't know if you have been able to be exposed to his writings by the name of James B. Jordan. Yes, and album, yeah. Okay, and James Jordan was my, my pianist when I came, also mm-hmm. my Sunday school teacher. So there was already a, a fairly established desire to incorporate a good music through chanting or metrical psalms or fugue psalms or whatever it might be, and good hymnody. Jim didn't have the, the kind of charisma to implement it, but he had the musical theory behind it. So when I came along, it was a a strong desire of mine to bring music to the forefront of what we did as a church. Now, most of our congregation had come from Baptistic backgrounds where the choirs or the professional musicians did 99% of the singing and the people just sort of were in spectator mode. Mm -hmm. So encouraging them that they are actually participants in the singing, that was step one. And then encouraging them to realize that the instrumentation merely accentuate the greater instrument, which is the vocal cords. That was step two. And then step three was singing music that was, uh, first of all, that that had a a, a a clear melodic trajectory, and then building from there. So if the most complicated piece of music you have is Amazing Grace then you you learn that piece really well, mm-hmm. and then you begin to divide that piece into parts, you know, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. You divide them into parts, so you master that song before you move to something else. So my encouragement would be to any congregation desiring to sing uh, more, more variedly, it would be to take your most complicated music, whatever it might be, How Great Thou Art, you know, be down my vision, Mm -hmm. learn it really well, learn into parts, find someone in the congregation who is skilled. And that's what we've been doing for 16 years. Mm -hmm. The result of that was that around uh, 13, 14 years ago, we started something called uh, wine and psalm roar. (laughs) And the reason we use that language of roaring is because as my Sunday school teacher observed that the Christians don't sing psalms, they roar their psalms. We are disciples of the Lion of Judah, and that has become, David, one of the most evangelistic means that we have used in our community. When we do psalm Roars, it allows us to invite visitors, unbelievers to come, and to experience something that is actually quite rare in our mm-hmm. evangelical culture, which is to sing God's word and then fellowship with God's people with food and drink and then seal that opportunity with uh, a doxology. In other words, make our music the kind of thing that is uh, recognizable, and so that one of our reputations here in town is we were viewed as the singing church. And I love that. I, <laughs> that I would be excellent. perfectly fine if no one who, who I was as the pastor, but if they identified us as a singing church, at the very least they would know that we're the kind of people who who take God's songs very seriously.
0: hmm Mm-hmm. that's wonderful um i want to return a little bit to um to this idea of us being priests at war um yes you you lay out in your in in your book uh a sort of a, a four stage uh four phase progress of the war of god's people against satan through history um, so you've got, I think, first historical defeats from, in the Old Testament, leading up to the the crushing of Satan at the cross, and then uh, on into uh, the Church's victory over Satan through history, and then finally the final defeat of Satan right at the end of um, end of history. Uh, I think most people in my circle certainly um, would have no problem with your first two. Um, Phases there, and they'd have no problem with the final phase of that. And yet, somewhere in that phase three, uh, they really want to sort of uh, step back from that and say that really the, the time between Jesus's first coming and his uh, and his final coming, there's not much war and victory over Satan happening here. I was just wondering if if you've had um, any of that kind of pushback, experienced any kind of that kind of thinking, and uh, and why do you think? Why do you think that is? Why, why has the church got that into their head that uh, between Jesus' first coming and second coming, it's basically a historical, uh, not much is going on?
1: Um, right, right. Well, well, thank you for that question. I think I've done around 15 interviews, and you're the first one to ask that question in particular. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think that's a very crucial element of the book itself, because my premise is that every system, every institution has a particular eschatology. Evil itself has an eschatology, right? Uh, whether you know whether Baptists agree with with me or not, um, the eschatology of evil—they want their children baptized. Also, mm-hmm. they want mm-hmm. them baptized into a particular ideology, yeah. into a particular nurture and admonition. I think that's that's significant too. But the eschatological question, particularly the role of Satan, is one that I think has played out historically. And and you mentioned the fourfold trajectory that I think is very clear in the Bible. But I think the evangelical church has a problem of seeing the work of the devil by sight and not by faith. Hmm. And what I mean by that is that it's very easy to turn on the news and not see the kinds of progress that I envision as a as somebody who's optimistic about the future as a post-millennial thinker. But the reality is we're called to to see history through the lens of faith.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I guarantee you that if you lived in the days of Jesus as he was going through his itinerant ministry with his 12 disciples, and then later on with uh, when Judas is out of the picture with Matthias, I guarantee you nobody envisioned that the 12 disciples would become 3 billion disciples mm. in 2024 so that numerical quantitative element is i think it's very crucial too it's not the end goal it's not the only thing that matters but it's certainly a significant one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right if this promise is a promise that will encompass from sea to sea from every corner of the earth four corners of the earth then we ought to see some quantitative dimension also but the other element is that when you read through the new testament scriptures what we see In the the devil's description, especially in the ministry of Jesus, what we see is a devil that is deeply and consistently weakened by the ministry of Jesus. Mm -hmm. When Jesus appears on the scene, especially in the Gospel of Mark, we see in the early chapters that the demons erupt in fury over the ministry of Jesus. What does Jesus do? He conquers them. He throws them into pigs, and from pigs, they're drowning to the sea. People are constantly exorcised through demons. The devil brings out his A-game, and his A-game offers absolutely nothing compared to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And even at the very moment when the devil appeared to have the final victory at the cross of Jesus, Jesus uses the cross itself, and the cross is, quote, turned upside down, because when that happens, the cross becomes a sword. And that sword is able to pierce the kingdom of darkness also. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: He also says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, that in the death of Jesus, the devil was defeated. So the evangelical interpreter has to at least acknowledge that in some way, the devil was defeated at the cross. Or weakened. Mm-hmm. My argument goes a step further, and argues that in Revelation chapter twenty, in that famous uh, millennium passage, mm-hmm. that the devil is not only defeated as if he's just, um, you know, ha- had a uh, had a, a bruise in his pride, but the devil was actually placed into a dark dungeon, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that he still has, as a screw tape does, he still has his nephews around doing his mm-hmm. bidding. And the devil is still able to, to actively participate in the temptations of, of, of the world. But he is weakened to the point where he can no longer, as Revelation 20 says, prevent the gospel from moving beyond the, the barriers of Israel and moving beyond to the ends of the earth. Mm-hmm. The reason the devil had such success in the Old Testament and was because God gave him a sort of a free range to operate, to tempt whom he pleased, and to keep the gospel relatively imprisoned to one geographical space, namely Israel. The defeat of the devil is proven in the New Testament by the promise of the Great Commission, that the gospel go to the ends of the earth, disciple the nations, baptize them. Mm -hmm. And we know for a fact that the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. So the devil is weakened, and even at the final season of world history, When he's loosened for a little season, Revelation says, even his loosening for a little season will be only for the purpose of a final display of his weakness and his defeat. So think about this. We have had martyrdom since the early stages of history. At the end of history, while the Christian church through historically has been mocked and scorned through martyrdom, At the end of history, the roles are reversed. The devil is released for a short time, and he is now mocked by a Christianized civilization. The saints and their Lord now put the devil on display, and the mockery is complete. And at that moment, the church and her Lord will enter into eternal bliss forever and ever.
0: And how encouraging uh, that! Um, even though there is a war and that we've got armor to put on, we know that it's a it's a winning war, uh, and that even though there might be the blood of martyrs for the meantime, it will be the seed of the church, as we've seen from the start. Um, it's a great encouragement, I think, in in the midst of an exhortation to put your armor on and 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 get to it. Um,
1: Sure is, David. Let me add one more thing also. I want to, in light of what you just said, I think the the armor has to be viewed through a scatological lens or a covenantal Mm -hmm. lens. So this armor is put on by the individual, true, at his baptism, but that individual joins a corporate army Mm -hmm. that's fighting against principalities and powers. So the armor is covenantal in nature. We don't simply put the armor on so we can have our sort of happy, pious time on our own. In fact, the armor is only effective, I will argue later mm-hmm. on in the book, if it is joined to other priests. And this is the language of Luther, the priesthood of all believers, which has been interpreted to mean, you know, we are we are self-appointed appointed popes, but that's far from what Luther and Calvin meant by that language. What Calvin and Luther mm-hmm. meant by that language is that we're not self-appointed popes, we are appointed to be under one true Lord and King, Jesus Christ. And we can only do that effectively if we are united to other saints and other priests. Yeah,
0: it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's something certainly that we see here in in Cyprus um, that um, just quite a low view of, of the church, uh, quite a, a low view of, of Christians being um, together in, in in this covenant. Um, and not just individual doing their own thing. Um, so I think that's a really, really helpful emphasis uh, in, in your book. Um, I don't think we've got that much time left, maybe a few minutes, but uh, one question I, I'd like to ask. Um, I don't want you to go through each of the individual pieces of the armour uh, right now. I think we've got to main, maintain some surprises, you know, I don't, don't want spoilers for the book, but... Uh, if there was one piece of this armor of God that the that the church, um, the evangelical church, in, in in your experience, has sort of left in the cupboard more than any of the others, um, which one would it be?
1: That is a that's a great question. I have 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 been thought through through those categories. I really appreciate. I think the one that stands out to me when you think of what has what has the Christian given least attention to. I would venture to say it's not so much the belt of truth. I think everyone has a a general sense of what truth is. And in the mm-hmm. in the classical tradition, of course we have you know truth, goodness, and beauty. I'll venture to say that the breastplate of righteousness, the one has been most minimized. And I argued through the language of the Old Testament in the in the priestly description in, in Exodus 28, but also in the description of Jesus in Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 50, uh, Isaiah 63, that the breastplate of righteousness is the armor piece that allows the Christian to be discerning in the world. Mm-hmm. Many Christians may have a sense and duty to truth. They know what John 14 and John 16 say about truth, but they fail to understand that that truth is to be used so that we may discern between good and evil. Mm. And I don't know in particular the culture in Cyprus, but I do know that my experience both here in North America and in South America would lead me to say that the, the uh, the woke journey through the American church has taken away the breastplate of righteousness, the discernment capability of the Christian, to the point where even evangelical leaders are falling for these kinds of traps. This would fall under the category of the schemes of the devil. The scheme of the devil plays out by making the case that anyone who has experienced any form of tragedy or gone through any sort of difficulty has does hereby it conferred the title of a victim. And that victimhood status allows him to do whatever he pleases demand whatever he pleases, live with whomever he pleases, and also to quote, deconstruct the Bible mm-hmm. to fit the paradigm that he wishes, so that now Jesus is tailored into uh, this form of modern-day genie, that he only exists to provide for us the comfort that we need, not in our sin, but in our victimhood. Mm-hmm. So with that perspective, what it has done is that the sermon of the Christian has been diminished, and I'm arguing that the Scriptures causes us through this imperative to put on the breastplate of righteousness so that we would be able to see a counterfeit and identify it immediately within the body. And that's why the body is significant, by the way, David, because when one brother can't see truth, mm-hmm. another brother comes alongside and say, no, no. There's something here that doesn't smell right. This is not the way of righteousness, but the way of falsehood. So take this way rather than the other way. So the Christian needs to exercise his discernment, and that is always best done when he is in a community of righteousness.
0: Excellent. Well, I think we're, we're almost out of time. So, um, let me just say thank you very much for 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 joining uh joining me and talking about these things um once again your book is called the war of the priesthood um and uh, where where's it available
1: um the best place to the best place to find the book is if you go to the website called nogginnose press that's nogginnose.com that's n o g g i n n o s e.com of course, it's available in stores everywhere, including Amazon. If you want to buy directly from the publisher, I think it'll give them a little bit, a few extra bucks uh-huh. than buying from uh-huh. Amazon. But of course, Amazon has all the resources and it probably will uh-huh. get to a place like Cyprus much faster yes, than the, the thing, yeah. uh, regular publishing company. <laughs> so look for Amazon, but also naganoes.com. And uh, they've done just a great job. I was very pleased, especially with the the typeset, the format, uh-huh. um, the cover, which I think is really delightful, illustrating the the colors of the priestly garments. And uh, I was also very grateful to receive uh, endorsements from figures that you may know uh, in the in the Christian school, classical school world, George Grant, uh, Peter mm-hmm. Lightheart, mm-hmm. Uh, Jared Longshore in Moscow, Idaho, and then Dr. Andrew Sandlin of the Center mm-hmm. for Cultural Leadership. And those brothers were a, not only in, uh, good endorsers, but good encouragers as I worked through this process.
0: Great. Well, I would recommend... Uh, recommend all of our listeners to uh to get a hold of this book if you can it's one that's worth braving the Cyprus postal system um to to you know chance <laughs> it and hope that it arrives uh, so uh, let me recommend this book to you and uh, once again thank you for joining us at pastor brito and uh and thank you to all of you our listeners um for tuning in and we'll uh, see you next time